In the first 18 verses of chapter 10, we looked at a few weeks ago. I don't know how many of you remember. I know some of you were sleeping, and I'll forgive you for that. Uh, but we saw Jesus presented himself as the what? The good shepherd. Who had a relationship, who has a relationship with his, to his sheep. Who provided for the sheep and sacrificed his life for the sheep. However, as we get into this next section, things have turned around. And in this section of John's Gospel, we encounter the continued hostility towards Jesus by the Jewish leaders, which really, contrary to Jesus being the good shepherd, they were the false shepherds of Israel. That should have been the good shepherds of Israel. But we need to be encouraged tonight, because in the midst of opposition, and we're going to see that, If we are truly Christ's sheep, we will still hear his voice, we will still follow him, and no one will be able to stop us from believing because God has given us eternal life. We're not going to listen to the voice or the voices of false shepherds. In today's vernacular, we will not follow the teachings of false teachers, preachers, pastors, etc. So let's read John 10. We're going to start at verses 19. We're just going to go through verses 30. And this is where I left off the last time. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We'll stop there. Let's pray. And Father, we just pray today you be glorified. That your word will exalt your son Jesus Christ. Your word will convict each and every one of our hearts. Your word will encourage each and every one of our hearts. Help us not to be hearers of your word this afternoon. But help us to leave this place doing your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. When Jesus wonderfully saved me in 1978. Two years later I started the job. Which I'm still presently employed at. And one day, in the very first year, I shared the gospel with this young man. He was one of my co-workers. His name was Chris. Who went home that night. And I didn't know he was going to do this, but he went home that night and asked Christ into his heart. Well, the next day, he came to work and he told me, John, I, I went into my prayer closet and asked Christ into my heart. And we became good friends and we're still good friends to this very day. And there was a secretary... In the same company we worked for. Her name was Ann. 
who was very special. She was very different than most people. She was very kind and pleasant all the time. All the time. There was not ever a harsh word that ever came out of her mouth. She was always pleasant and kind all the time. Well, one day when I was with Chris at work, I, I said to him, do you think Anne is a Christian? And he said, well, you know, she probably is, you know, because of just her whole attitude. So we decided to ask her. And we went to her desk and we said, Anne, are you a Christian? And, and she looked at us and smiled. And without a word, she went into a drawer and pulled out a Bible and showed us. And of course, being a new Christian, we were overjoyed. You know, older Christians, we don't get overjoyed anymore. But new Christians, we were overjoyed, screaming and yelling, and we were so happy. It's amazing that in a hostile world, we were able to identify the real deal. Even though she was in this environment of hostility, people that didn't serve Christ, and still believed, she still listened, and she still followed Christ. And she's a good friend of mine till this day, 36 years later. And my friend and I, we saw it clearly before we even asked them. So here's my proposition to you tonight before we start the sermon. In a world that is increasingly hostile towards Christ, Christ's true sheep will continue to believe, will continue to listen, and to follow him. They're going to persevere. Let's get into our text. After Jesus gave the crowds and the Jewish leaders that beautiful discourse on the Good Shepherd, verses 20 to 21 shows us that it created controversy. Jesus always creates controversy. If you ever preach the gospel or ever talk to somebody about Jesus, there's always somebody in the crowd that's going to cause controversy. Simply because most of the leaders of Israel hated Jesus. And a lot of the people you meet are going to hate Jesus. Many of them said, he has a demon and he is insane. Why listen to him? They outrightly rejected Christ. But others said, these are not the words of one who was oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And if you remember Jesus back in chapter 9, healed the blind man. And I preached on that a few months ago. And he healed him not only physically... But more importantly, he healed this man spiritually. And some were now open to the possibility that that Jesus could be the Messiah. Because who could do these miraculous things like open the uh, blind eyes? You see, most of the time when we speak to people about Christ, you and I are going to encounter opposition, controversy. We're going to see that. We're going to see opposition and we're going to see controversy. But sometimes we're going to see acceptance. And if you haven't noticed, this country is becoming more and more hostile towards Christianity. Many countries are already very much anti-Christ, especially Islamic countries. And this country, believers, I'm saying it now, this country is quickly catching up. But I want to encourage you that even in the midst of opposition... And controversy, God always has, always will have a remnant of sheep that will hear his call. Always, always. We see this 
We see that over and over again in the Gospels. Jesus preaches, right? He does miracles. And the Jewish leaders hate him and want to kill him. Others want to follow him to see what they can get out of Jesus. But there are some who will genuinely believe in him, which is evidenced by their repentance and willingness to follow and obey him. Never stop sharing Christ. No matter how bad it gets, never stop sharing Christ. And if I may be bold enough to say, even if it costs you your life, never stop sharing Christ. God is always working, whether we see it or not. He's always working, and we see that through John's gospel. It looked like he wasn't working. It looked like he was a failure. I just sent um, a thing by uh, Oswald Chambers to uh, Brian Terry and my wife. God, um, how does it go? Oh, it just slipped my mind. Jesus Christ looked like a failure to everybody. I'm going to paraphrase it. He looked like a failure to everybody except God. Never stop sharing the gospel. God is always working. Our text tonight, we're going to look at two points. There's really four points, but we're going to, I'm going to, it's just not enough time. We're going to look at two points that will encourage you as true followers of Jesus Christ, knowing that 2,000 years later, things are still the same. And here's the four points, but we're only going to look at two of them. The rejection of the Good Shepherd, the identity with the Good Shepherd, the divinity of the Good Shepherd, and the departure of the Good Shepherd. That's the last one. That's the next time I speak. The departure of the Jesus does draw a line. God draws a line when He says no more. Let's look at the first point. The rejection of the Good Shepherd. In the midst of rejection... Of Jesus, true believers continued to follow him. Verses 22 through 26 again. At the time of the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered him, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now John says it was the Feast of Dedication. Okay? It, throughout his gospel, he talks about different various feasts at different points in time. It's because Jesus is the fulfillment of all the feasts. And John brings out specific points about the feast uh, for specific reasons. So, John says it was the Feast of Dedication, which is known as today as Hanukkah, or the Feast of Lights. During this feast, the Jews lit lamps or candles, you see the menorahs, in their homes as part of this celebration. The feast came about, this is how the, the, this feast developed, it, it, it came about in the intertestamental period. The intertestamental period was when the Old Testament um, well, the, the last prophet Malachi ended, and now you have 400 silent years. That was the intertestamental period, which was between the Old and the New Testaments, called the 400 silent years. During that time, there was no prophet or voice from God until who? John the Baptist. And even though God seemed to be silent, things were still happening. By the way, when God seems to be silent, He's still working. Rest assured, he's still working. And I've seen that over and over again in my life. That when I think that God is not doing something, he's still working. The Trinity has been working since the creation of the redemption of souls, for the redemption of souls. Anyway, during this seemingly silent period, there was a brutal emperor named Antichus Epiphanes, who wanted to mix 
Hebrew and Jewish or Hebrew and Greek culture. In doing so, he defiled the Jewish temple. He made the priest eat pork, turned the chambers of the temple into a prostitution house, and converted the altar for meat offerings into an altar of Zeus. However, God was at work, even when it seems like he wasn't. There was a Jewish priest named Judas Maccabeus, who led a revolt called the Maccabean Revolt, and fought against the emperor Antichus, and defeated him. And that was during around 167 to 160 B.C. That was in the intertestamental period again. And then Judas Maccabeus went and cleansed the temple that Antichus defiled. So Israel celebrates every year this celebration of, of, of Hanukkah every year until this day. And I think that's precisely what happened here in John's Gospel and why he mentions that it was the Feast of Dedication when Jesus was walking in the temple area in verse 22. Just like Maccabeus cleansed the temple of defilement, Jesus, the Messiah, the Good Shepherd, is come to the temple and throw out all invaders and reestablishing his kingdom. See, he's going to now make the temple... Really, it wasn't the physical temple, but he's going to show what the temple was really meant to be. So, Jesus is really the fulfillment of all the feasts. And John also tells us it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the colonnade of Solomon. John probably mentions this because winter was cold, it was rainy, and the colonnade provided a measure of shelter from the elements. And some seem, some of these scholars see winter as a metaphor for Israel's spiritual coldness, their spiritual state. They had no idea the Messiah was right there. It describes not only the season of the year, but also, as I said, Israel's spiritual coldness. So the Jews at this time were in the temple area, and they surround Jesus and demanded to tell him if he was the Christ. And the NIV says it like this, How long will you keep us in suspense if you are the Christ Tell us plainly. Some translators translate it like this. How long are you going to annoy us? Which is in reality reflected their hostility towards Jesus. I don't think their motives were pure. That's a good question, by the way. Tell us, or are you the Christ? That's a good question. But I don't think their motives were pure. Matter of fact, I know their motives weren't pure. However... That was a right and most significant question anyone can ask. But again, their motives were far less than pure in their questioning Jesus. And as you read in the chapter, you understand that they were antagonistic and hostile. They weren't concerned with finding out, hey Jesus, if, if you're truly the Messiah, we want to worship you. They weren't concerned about that. No. They were looking for Jesus to say, yes, I am the Messiah. So they would have in their minds ample evidence of blasphemy to get rid of him. Jesus, at this point, had not yet publicly declared to be Messiah. He was careful, very careful, about using the term openly, although he did reveal it privately to the woman at the well and his disciples, if you remember that, in um, John chapter 4, and then in... um, I think John chapter 5. He was careful about saying that he was the Messiah. But he was careful about using the term openly because most viewed Messiah as coming as a warrior and to put an end to Roman oppression. 
They didn't understand that Jesus was coming the first time as what Isaiah said, the suffering servant of the Lord. And the Jews to this day are still waiting for this conqueror. They had no understanding that Jesus would suffer and die. The Jewish community today is still waiting for that glorious Messiah. But even though he never publicly proclaimed the Messiah, to be the Messiah, the Jews had more than enough evidence that pointed to Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah. They had revelation. They saw and they heard. They saw his miraculous signs. And they heard his divine words. So why were they not seeing and why were they not hearing? Why were they so hard-hearted? The answer is, I think, fairly simple. Because Jesus, number one, was a threat to their power and their reputation. The people held the Jewish leaders in high honor. And now Jesus comes along healing people, preaching the gospel, like um, healing people like opening a blind man's eyes, healing a paralytic, feeding thousands from a few fish and loaves of bread. And not only that, but speaks powerful and authoritative words. So with all of that, who do you think the people are now flocking to? That used to flock to the Jewish leaders. Now they're starting to flock to Jesus. And they became very envious and very jealous. Another reason was that the Jews were very fearful of a revolt. A revolt. Jesus might spark against Rome. And Rome would take away their rights and freedom. So it seemed their strategy was to make Jesus say publicly that he was the Messiah and they could now arrest him and be rid of him and they can continue to live the way they wanted to live. But to admit he was the Messiah would mean change. It would mean big change, which they were not willing to, you know, to make. Listen, when anyone truly believes and accepts Christ, big changes happen. There's no such thing as I raised my hand at a church service, came to faith in Christ, and there's no change in my life. That is unbiblical. It's not founded anywhere from Genesis to Revelation. When God, uh, through Christ, comes into a person's life, big changes happen. The Jews are not willing to do that. And many people today are not willing to do that. It's not business as usual. Sin begins to dissipate on all, out of our lives. You are not on the throne of your life anymore. Jesus is. Most people want Jesus on their own terms. They don't want him if it means their whole lives are going to change. And I think there are many Christians, or I think there are many churches, I should say, that are packed out because they are being taught that your sins can be forgiven and God wants you healthy and wealthy. And that you're somebody. The emphasis in these teachings is really on you and me, isn't it? A lot of teaching in the church today. Really, who is it about? It's about Christ. It always has. You know, I always was blessed by this man, Lewis. He just moved out to um, Arizona with his, with his wife. Where did he move down to? Arizona. And I, I always loved his prayer because he always said, Jesus, it's about you. It's not about us. And it is. It's about Christ. You see, most of the teaching today, God is not first. It's you and getting all of your corrupt, heartfelt needs met. Oswald Chambers, the earliest 
the early 20th century Scottish Baptist and Holiest Movement evangelist and teacher, best known for the devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, said in one of his devotions, now listen to this, it must be God first, God second, and God third, until the life is faced steadily with God and no one else is of any account whatever. And then he quotes a hymn. In all the world there is none but thee. My God, there is none but thee. The Jews were not willing to come to Christ the Messiah, the good shepherd. They were not willing to put God first, second, or third. They were not willing to listen. They were not willing to follow the good shepherd, proving they were not his sheep. Anyway, Jesus responds to their question. Are you the Christ? That was their question. He told them, I told you, and you do not believe. Did Jesus tell them explicitly, I am the Messiah? No. There is no record of Jesus ever saying that. However, he did say plainly, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Who but the Messiah could be the light of the world? He did say plainly, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Who but the Messiah could be the bread of life? Who but the Messiah could say before Abraham was, I am? So in a sense, in that sense, he did tell them. Moreover, the works he did in his father's name should have convinced them that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. I mean, Jesus fed 5,000. Actually, he fed Upwards of 22,000 when you include the woman and children. Out of five small little pita breads and two little sardines that wouldn't even feed Brian. (laughs) He changed water into wine. He healed the paralytic. What more did they need? What was their problem? Jesus tells them their problem. You know what their problem was? They didn't belong to him. They were not his sheep. The problem was not a lack of information. They had plenty of information. They saw plenty of miracles. They heard his authoritative words. He fulfilled a lot of prophecy. Their problem was Christ's sheep were given to him by his father, and they were not. They, they, they were, it was a failure to belong to his sheep. It was not granted to the others, the Jews, to come to Jesus. John 6.44 plainly says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. They were not his sheep. The Father did not draw them to the Son. Now, before anybody gets a perverted or not perverted, but a, a wrong idea, it doesn't mean they weren't responsible. They were still responsible for not coming to Christ. Even God, though God elects and God chooses, the people are still responsible. There are two realities here. God's divine sovereignty and human responsibility, which I think is beyond human comprehension. And also the Bible never attempts to harmonize them, nor does it apologize for the tension. Once again, people reject Jesus not because of a lack of evidence, but because they don't belong to him. You know, I'm sure there's numerous examples that we could look at um, why some hear the gospel and come to Christ and some hear the gospel and reject Christ. But let me give you a quick biblical example. In Luke 22, 22, 
Jesus is with his disciples eating the Passover meal. And he's troubled in his spirit because he knows Judas is going to betray him. And it says in Luke twenty two twenty two, Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. As it has been determined. Who determined it? But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So it's been determined. Right? But we also know Judas is still responsible. Because Jesus said, woe to that man for betraying Jesus. Judas was not one of Christ's sheep. He was not one of his elect. He was no better or worse than the Pharisees or any unbeliever for that matter. It's been determined by God that this should happen. But woe to that man. See? God's divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Don't try to figure everything out in the Bible. You can't. But it's there. And because it's there, we believe it. Even though Judas betrayed and ultimately rejected Jesus and joined the entourage of rejectors, the leaders of Israel, the rest of Jesus' apostles, 11 of them, were still his sheep. They were still identified with him, which is our second point. The identity of the good shepherd. Verses 27 through 29. In the midst of the rejection of Jesus, true believers, and if that's you and that's me, we're still identified with him. We don't go away. We don't go away and we're still pleased to be identified with him. Verse 27 through 29, he says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. How are true believers identified with Jesus? How are you and I identified with Jesus? There are six characteristics. These are called, by the way, subpoints. We have the two major points, and these are subpoints. The identity of the Good Shepherd is the main point, or one of the main points. And now I'm going to give you six subpoints. And there's six characteristics of identity with the Savior. The first one is union with Christ. Jesus calls true sheep, true believers. What does he say? He says, my sheep. We belong to Christ. I love that song we used to sing. I belong to Jesus. I belong to him. I belong to Jesus free from sin. John Murray wrote that union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It is not simply a phrase of application of redemption. It underlines every aspect of of redemption. In other words, salvation from the beginning to end is in Christ. If we're not in Christ, we are in Adam, separated from God, slaves of sin and Satan. However, because we're in Christ, we are now new creations, forgiven, sanctified, and soon to be glorified. We are in union with Christ. We are his sheep. And even though people reject Christ and his gospel and are hostile towards us, no one can separate that union. No one. The second characteristic of identity of true sheep is they hear his voice. And what does that mean to hear the voice of God? Well, first of all, true believers in Christ heed the call of salvation. They hear the gospel message and they respond to it. No one 
comes to Jesus apart from the gospel. An angel from heaven is not going to come down and, and tell you the gospel. We are the ones that are God's mouthpiece. We go out and share the gospel. Whether it's through a preacher, whether it's through just a regular layperson, we all have the responsibility of going and using the words of the gospel of Christ. In other words, no one comes to faith in Jesus apart from the gospel, which is the message made up of what? Words. Words from the very mouth of God himself. Romans 10 uh, verses 9 through 18 gives us a clear understanding of this. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scriptures says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now listen to what he says. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? That is as it is written. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from what? Hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You and I carry the voice of the gospel. We carry the voice of Jesus Christ. So salvation comes to those who hear the facts of the gospel. That's his voice. And they believe the facts of the gospel. That's responding to his voice. When I was 26 years old, I heard the true gospel message and I responded to it. I heard Christ's voice. John, you're a sinful man, but I died on the cross for you and I was resurrected back to life. I want you now to trust me and follow me. Now, I didn't hear those voices audibly. But when I heard the gospel message, that was, that's what resonated in my heart. That's what I heard. I heard the voice of Christ and I responded to it. I said, yes, Lord. But it did not stop there. I still hear his voice as I read the scriptures. And although my response is not perfect, because I'm not perfect, my wife thinks I'm perfect. Right, Kim? Okay, until we get home. (laughs) Even though my response to his voice is not perfect, I obey his voice daily. And I want to, I'm working towards that perfection. You know, I let... I, I welcome Christ's discipline in my life to perfect me in that obedience. And do you hear his voice? Are you obeying his voice? Some question that not only I have to ask myself, each and every one of us as Christians, as believers, even the leadership here, we have to ask ourselves that. On the contrary, unbelievers have, if any, very little interest in hearing the voice of God. They have very little interest in, in the Bible. They're not concerned about listening to God's voice. They're, listening, they're concerned about listening to their own voice or those voices that make them feel good. True sheep, true believers live in the Word. That's the voice of God. Listening to the Word. You know, every time I open the Word, I know I'm listening to His voice. And sometimes... I could be reading something and it'll jump off the page into my heart. I remember that when I first experienced that, 
I was only a Christian about a year, and I was reading something. I was going through a really rough time, and I read something, and I remember reading this in Romans. It said, and the God, and I was angst at that point. I was so angst. And I remember this. I remember reading this. And the God of peace shall crush Satan under your feet. And those words literally jumped into my heart, and the peace, um, the, the turmoil was dispelled. Totally dispelled. We live as Christians to hear His voice. And we won't listen to the other voices. Voices of the world, the voices of our own flesh, the voices of demons. In other words, we won't listen to the lies that enter our minds. For example, Jesus, we might hear something like, Jesus can't be the only way to God. And if you're not strong in in the Word of God, if you don't Fill your mind and heart with the Word of God. When somebody says something like that, you could start having doubts. You know, they might say things like, look at the religious person who lives a good life, but is a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Hindu. Or maybe they do many good works. Are you telling me, because they're not following Christ, they are going to hell? And I would tell them, I'm not telling you anything. On my own, anyway. I'm telling you what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What about Christians? The true, genuine believer heard the voice of Jesus to come to him for eternal life. He or she is saved. They're born again. They're washed in his blood. They're regenerated. Do we still hear the voice of Christ? Can we still reject or ignore his voice after being justified? Is that a possibility? Yes and no. Are you confused? Yes, at times we can't still reject His voice. And no, not continually. The voice of Christ tells us, for example, in Matthew 16, 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And we as Christians hear this voice every day. And we are learning to listen to the voice of Christ that tells us, John, Brian, Kim, Terry, Mary, whoever you are out there, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself of the sinful pleasures that suddenly lead you away from me. But if we continue to sin and never pick up our crosses and never follow him, we are listening to the we are not listening to his voice and we may not even be Christians. We need to listen to the voice of Christ. Illustration In Voice of the Martyrs newsletter of September 2014, it says, Voice of the Martyr is currently providing aid to to a group of 43 pastors in Tunisia who have been accused of blasphemy. All 43 are Christian converts from Islam who now lead small groups of believers, made up mostly of former Muslims. The pastors were convicted of blasphemy by small regional courts for saying things like, Muhammad is not a prophet. Their, case, their cases have been combined and brought before the High Court in Dar es Salaam. The outcome of this case will set a precedent in, 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 in the growing religious divide in Tanzania. That's how you say it, actually. And it freed these pastors and will be able to continue serving their congregations. Voice of the Martyrs' main 
contact in the region is among the 43 charged with breaching the peace by shaking the faith of Muslims. Here are some excerpts from his report on the situation. I'm going to read two of them. This is the two pastors. Two pastors. Two different pastors. Sometimes friends urge us to quit and do missions in safe areas. But my answer always has been Jeremiah 29. 20, chapter 20, verse 9. I tell them not to stop me, but to pray for me because the fire inside me can't let me even quit, even if I tried. That pastor's hearing the voice of God in his heart, based on the scripture of, of Jeremiah. He's hearing Christ's voice. Don't quit. I'm with you. This is another one. Right now, we don't have much time. I know we have maybe two or three years to continue this work because most of us have already been put on the death list. Before that, but before that, I want to finish the mission that, that Heavenly Father tasked me with. And he's using John 17.4 when Jesus said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. He heard his voice. He heard Christ's voice based on that scripture. I'm going to finish the work that you've called me to do. This pastor said, I'm not quitting. No matter how many people urge me, I'm going to listen to the voice in my heart from through the word of God. I am going to continue doing this work, even if it cost me my life. They heard his voice. The true sheep of God, the true believers, sought through all the, sought, all the false voices, the false voices of religion, the voices of demons, the voices of this temporal world, and only listen to the voice of their master, Jesus Christ. Right, there's a third characteristic of identity with the good shepherd. The true sheep of Christ are known by Christ. The God of all creation knows us. Does that not do something to you? The God who created the heavens and the earth knows you by name. He doesn't know everybody. He knows you. The word, the Greek word for know is gnosko. And it denotes a deep and intimate love relationship. That's what the word means. The Son of God has this deep, loving relationship with us. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus tells you, or tells us, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Listen, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Not only does the Good Shepherd know us, but we also know Him. D.A. Carson, one of the great theologians, said the intimacy of this relationship is mirrored on the intimacy between the Father and the Son. In other words, I think what he's saying is the relationship between the Father and the Son is modeled by the relationship between Jesus and believers. We are all involved, I mean, all Christians are involved in this deep, intimate affection that is shared between Jesus and the Father. This is not shared with the world. We have to understand that. We are special people. Not because we merited it, no. Actually, we were sinning and enemies of God when He sent Christ to die for us. We are special because God in His infinite wisdom decided to save us according to His mercy, as Paul told Titus. So we're special. And Jesus knows us. And He graciously, redemptively is committed to us. Let me illustrate. I know my wife. And my wife knows me. There's a deep, intimate knowledge and love that is only shared between the two of us and no one else. 
She's special to me and I'm special to her. I'm committed to her and she's committed to me. And that's the way it's supposed to be between a husband and a wife. And this is the way it's between God the Father and God the Son and Christ and His church. That's absolutely beautiful. Absolutely. On the contrary, the Jews, Jesus was addressing, and any unbeliever for that matter, are not in union with Christ, don't hear His voice, are not known by Him, no matter what they claim. There's many people that claim to know Christ, or claim to know God, but they're not honoring His Son. You don't honor the Son, you cannot honor the Father. The fourth characteristic of identity with the Good Shepherd is true believers follow Christ. This one really got to me, and I gotta be honest, this one convicted my heart. True believers are disciples of Christ. Can a person who claims to be a Christian but not a follower of Christ truly be a Christian? No. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 9.23. He said, if anyone would come after me, if and listen, if anyone would come after me, let him what? Deny himself, let him take up his cross daily, and let him follow me. And before any of us claim to be followers of the Good Shepherd, let's see what this entails. Matthew 8, verses 18 to 23. The crowd was following Jesus when a Jewish scribe, this is a Jewish scribe, approached him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Really? Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said, Lord, let me go first. Let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And I think what Jesus was basically saying here is if you really want to follow me, if you really do, if you're really serious about following me, count the cost before you say, I'm going to follow you. You want to follow me? Well, I have no home. You want to follow me? Well, don't wait for your father to die. Bury him. Then you can get your inheritance later. Come, you come with me and follow me now. And following Jesus, we know, is not always easy. And it's not always comfortable. It means great sacrifices from time to time. Without any earthly reward or security. It may cost you popularity. It may cost you friendships. It may cost you many things. But the eternal rewards for being his disciple is far beyond what it cost us in this life. Yes, Jesus wants full loyalty. True believers deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow and follow him. I mean that once again, we may not be perfect in that, but we're on the road to that. We're growing in that. A number of Times in the spring when I was driving or walking by water or a pond, I would see ducks or Canadian geese with their little babies behind. Did you ever see that? Adorable. I mean, the, the mother duck and the little ducks, they, I mean, they're so small, they don't even have the feathers on them yet. They have just little, you know, peach fuzz. 
and they're following their mother. If the mother goes to the right, they go to the right. If the mother goes to the left, they go to the left. It's in- instinctive for them to do this. It's not, you know, they don't have to think about it. They just do it. No one taught them to follow. Once a person is born again, that person has to learn how to follow Jesus. Not like the baby ducklings. However, what I think is instinctive once we become born again is the will to follow Him. We may not follow Him perfectly now. We're learning to follow Him. But that will is instinctive. I want to follow Christ. I know that's what happened to me. Can I say for 37 years I followed Christ perfectly? No. But can I say my will has never changed in 37 years? Yes. Yes. It has never changed. I've always had this strong will to follow Christ and follow Him closely. I mean, all of a sudden we went from darkness into His marvelous light. And now there's this great desire to follow Him. And we begin to follow. Sometimes we get off track, like the old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But the Savior who began a good work in us prods us with His rod and staff back on the path of righteousness. And we continue again to follow Him. And if we're genuine believers, if we're genuine and we wander off the path of righteousness. Listen, this is the beauty of Christianity. Christ will always bring us back. Always. Always. Why? Because we belong to Him eternally. Verse 28. He says, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And this leads us into the next identity. The fifth characteristic of identity with the Good Shepherd is true believers are eternally secure by Christ. And this is an extremely strong affirmation of the eternal security of salvation of the believer. And it shows us clearly that our salvation does not depend on merit or effort or good works, but the gracious, sovereign election of God. I give them eternal life. Many Christians are taught today, and I was brought up in a church like this. Good churches, I'm not saying, but they brought up uh, being taught that they can lose their salvation. They can lose eternal life, which, by the way, is a contradiction in terms. Lose, what's, what's eternal mean? How can you lose something that's eternal? can The Greek word for eternal is ehianios. Say that three times fast. I dare you. Okay. And it means unending, everlasting for all time. So when Jesus says, I give you eternal life, it means it's unending, it's everlasting, and it's for all time. Does that sound like there's even a remote possibility that a true Christian can lose eternal life? This is what we believe. And this is what we believe the New Testament teaches. And we can say with confidence that once saved by Christ, always saved by Christ. If a person is lost, do they really have it? Or if a person loses it, do they really have it? Once a person, once Christ gets a hold of us, we put our hand to the plow and we don't look back. We may slip and fall at times, live a sloppy agape life, but we get back on track, as I said before. It's innate in us to persevere. The theologians call this perseverance of the saints. It's not that Christians have the ability on their own to persevere. No, if, it were, if we were left to ourselves to stay saved, 
every one of us would fall from grace, fall from faith, and perish. But that's not what Jesus promised, is it? No, he said, no one will snatch them out of my hand. He also said, my father who has given them to me, talking about election, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And I and the father of one are one. The father and his son are one. And you and I and every believer are safe in the eternal strong hands of the father and the son. By the way, I am the father of one is a strong affirmation of the deity of Christ. Let me give you a simple illustration of this biblical concept. When my children were young, and John Paul's back, he was one of my children, and it was time to cross the street. It wasn't so much that they held on to my hand as much as that I held on to their hand. If I left it to them to hold, for them to hold my hand, as we all know, children will be children, they would get distracted and would let go and wander off into the street where they could be struck by a car. No, no, they really had no choice because I would grab their hand firmly and they would not be able to get loose no matter how hard they tried. Now, I don't know why, but I still have to hold John Paul's hand crossing the street. I have no <laughs> Sorry, John Paul. But do you get the picture? God is not letting go. So whose hand are we in, the Father or the Son's? Dr. Ossie Sproul says, Are the sheep held in the Son's hand or the Father's hand? And he says the answer is simple, both. Really, we're held by God. Right? And in the Trinity, you have Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So we're held by the Father in the Son's hand. He, he went on to say, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. So that's how he makes, that's how he simplifies the answer. The Son and the Father are one in essence, with the Holy Spirit included as well. The perseverance of the saint is the work of the triune God. So the triune God is holding us. Let's conclude. You and I live in a world that rejects the Good Shepherd. Right? Right? They reject Christ, right? They reject the Bible, right? And in reality, they reject Christians because, simply because, why? We belong to Christ. And the reason they reject it is, yes, they love their sin, and yes, they love darkness rather than light. But the reason they love sin and darkness, which is the fruit, is because of the root. They don't belong to Jesus. See, sin and darkness is the fruit of not belonging to Jesus. They are not a sheep. Anyone who does not belong to Jesus loves sin and darkness. And in the midst of rejection of the Savior, Christians are still identified with Him. A hostile world does not strip us of our identity with Christ. We still belong to Him. We still hear His voice amongst the false voices. He knows us and we know Him. We follow Him and we are eternally secure by Him. And I believe if we think about these things and get them into our hearts, we won't fear the coming persecution. And our love for Christ will grow deeper and deeper.